Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. If you tuned into the Tokyo Olympics, you probably heard about a new event, climbing. All right, let's talk about sport climbing. This will no doubt take the Olympics to a whole new level, literally. Men and women will compete separately in three events, lead climbing, speed climbing, and bouldering. Not one a lot of people thought about as competitive, but now it's on fire. It's an addition climbers like Dan Goodwin have seen coming for a long time. Climbing is one of the fastest growing sports out there. There's over 28 million people, I think, in just the United States alone that are into climbing now. But this isn't a story about speed climbing or bouldering. It's about a different kind of climbing, one we're never going to see in the Olympics. And, uh, and at times I felt like I was like, a, like an astronaut floating in space, untethered from my mothership. There were often times where I felt like uh, this was it. This could be my final act. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. Welcome to Strangeville. Well, I think most of you probably know me. You know, so I'm Dan Goodwin. Pleasure to meet all of you. Dan Goodwin had a more intense introduction to the sport of climbing than most. It happened when he was out for a run as a teenager in Kennebunkport, Maine. I saw a famous climber, and I didn't know he was famous at the time. His name was Jimmy Dunn. And he was climbing, and he I heard someone scream. I didn't even know anyone was climbing. I was running along the base of a cliff. And I heard someone scream, and I looked up, and I see someone falling. And I dove out of the way, thinking he was going to hit the ground. But he didn't. Just as it appeared that this climber was sure to plummet to an untimely death, he was caught by a rope. For young Dan Goodwin, it was something of an early lesson that in climbing, your life often depends on your gear. Goodwin says he started climbing shortly after that experience. He didn't have a lot of money, but he managed to snag a pair of beat-up climbing shoes at a thrift store and practiced on a 20-foot concrete and stone wall at an old hotel. From there, he eventually made his way out to some nearby climbing areas in the Northeast. And before long, he was completely hooked. One thing leads to another. Next thing, I'm, I'm hitchhiking out west. I'm in California and uh, climb Yosemite. And um, I climb El Cap. El Cap being El Capitan in Yosemite, one of the most difficult climbs in the world. But even early on in his climbing career, Goodwin was fearless. Undeterred by the dangers of the sport at its most extreme, the risks that might cause some of us to scale back or maybe switch hobbies. My first route was going up the nose of El Cap and got caught in a snowstorm at the top. Um, thought I was going to die coming down because it was just so cold and um, get to the base and then uh, a few days later found out that uh, or the next day I found out that some climbers had been trapped and witnessed a really cool helicopter rescue where they, uh, helicopters came along and they actually were able to swing a climber on uh, a rescue person onto the side of the cliff and they attached the basket put the person on it, and then they turned around and buried the basket back up away. Um, so, I, I mean, I had some really cool experiences like that, but I didn't realize how they were going to affect me later until I'm at the, um, in Las Vegas. 
Goodwin was living in Las Vegas in November of 1980 when a catastrophic fire ripped through the MGM Grand Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. When I witnessed the MGM Grand Hotel fire, I, I had never witnessed a fire before. I mean, I'm, I had been to fires before, but they're all small house fires. Most of them were just chimney fires. I'm, all of a sudden, I'm looking at this major skyscraper. Well, it's not. It is a skyscraper, but I mean, it's it's a pretty tall building that is burning, and and people are all on the balconies with towels over their face. They're in their nightgowns. People are making makeshift. Um, ropes out of bed sheets and and i'm watching i'm just going and i see these helicopters hovering around and and they're doing a really good job rescuing the people that are made it to the roof but they couldn't get to the people that were trapped in the middle dozens of people died as a result of the mgm grand fire and hundreds more were hospitalized to this day it remains one of the deadliest building fires in american history as the tragedy unfolded in front of him goodwin wanted to do something and he thought back to that cliffside rescue he'd witnessed on El Cap. But I was watching the fire department, and I'm going, wow, you guys can only get up to like the seventh, eighth floor. You got all these people trapped up there. Damn, I, I know how we can do this. It's kind of like using kind of a hybrid of what they did in Yosemite. I could probably climb up with a rope and have it hook up to the helicopter. Somehow they could lower it down, and we could create this ferry system, and we could start lowering the basket and start pulling people up to the helicopter. I was just trying to think out of the box. Goodwin says he brought his idea to a fire chief who, understandably, wasn't exactly taking suggestions from the public at the time. He wasn't interested in all and what I had to say. And basically, long story short, just told me to get off the premises or have me arrested because he wasn't going to risk his his men on some wild-ass, crazy-ass scheme. And I get it. You know, I mean, who was I? The chief, Goodwin says, had just one question before asking him to leave his office. The fire chief asked me, had I ever climbed a building before? And I said, no. And he said, well, until you do, don't try telling me how to fight fires or rescue people in high-rise buildings so I make myself clear. And I remember, like, just going, wow, um... Okay, uh, yeah, you make yourself perfectly clear. And from that point on, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to go climb a building. Dan Goodwin's idea to use climbing rescue techniques during high-rise fires, it sounds great in theory. But I'll admit, I'm not a firefighter, and I've never been involved in a high-rise rescue operation. So we got a hold of someone who has. I've been doing this a long time, and uh, I pretty regularly go to fires in, in high-rise buildings. Um, they don't always turn out to be spectacular fires, but it's been a busy year on the Denver Fire Department. I've had three fires this year in, in high-rise buildings that require um, all of the procedures and operations that we need to do in those type of buildings. Dave McGrail is an assistant district chief with the Denver Fire Department. And on top of having nearly 40 years of experience under his belt, he literally wrote the book on high-rise firefighting. Or if not the book, a book called Firefighting Operations in High-Rise and Standpipe-Equipped Buildings. And one of the first cases he explores in the book is the 1980 MGM Grand Fire. The vast majority of fatalities at that building occurred a long distance from where the fire was. Uh, the fire was at street level, involved a casino, casino a big casino floor. Uh, it was a very significant fire. Uh, there were uh, people killed uh, on upper floors, high teens, uh, uh, the, the 20s. 
that's where many of the fatalities occurred, and it was because of that smoke propagation in the buildings. McGrail says that even though there have been a number of important changes to fire and building codes in the decades since the MGM Grand Fire, many of the same challenges still remain. We try to protect in place. If somebody needs to be rescued, it's difficult for us because our tallest ladders or our longest ladders primarily in the United States Fire Service, the American and Canadian Fire Service, are 100 foot long. Now, at a residential building, a 100 foot aerial ladder, you would be lucky to get to the 10th floor and the the fire truck's gotta be very close to the building to get to the 10th floor. When they can't rescue someone from below using ladders, McGrail says fire departments may try to perform the rescue from above. The other option is rope rescue. Uh, trying to rescue somebody from above with ropes. That's very complicated. It's very dangerous. Um, it puts firefighters and the occupants and the person that's being rescued in a very difficult position. And then another extreme example would be uh, roof, refu- roof rescue by using helicopters. Once again, very dangerous to insert somebody on the roof, but it is an option. And that's, I don't want to call it our last resort, but it's one of the last resorts. And the rope rescue is something we're not going to, that's not our go-to rescue, but it's something we may have to do. As for Goodwin's suggestion to use climbing rescue techniques, McGrail says it might be well-intentioned, but to him, it sounds a little too risky. What, what, what Goodwin's talking about would require very skilled climbing techniques and so on and so forth, something that perhaps he could employ. We're not going to be doing something like that. What we would be doing is we would be getting above. uh, We'd be be establishing the best anchor points that we could. And then we would be lowering a firefighter with uh, what we refer to as a, a, a lowering system on a rope to a victim to where we could grab the victim and the firefighter, bring them back up or lower them down to a, a safe position. Leaving the scene of the MGM Grand Fire in 1980, Dan Goodwin was determined to prove a point. He was going to climb a building. I just didn't know what building I was going to climb or how I was going to climb it. At the time, Dan was working as a climbing instructor, and he says one of his clients gave him an idea. He asked me if I had thought about what building I was going to climb. And I said, God, man, I don't have a clue. You know, it's like nothing in Las Vegas was really kind of doing it for me. I mean, now there would be something I'd climb. But back then, there wasn't really nothing that exciting to me. You know, it was like I thought I should be climbing something bigger, but I didn't know what it would be. So if you thought about climbing the Sears Tower, I said, Sears Tower, where's that? He says, it's in Chicago. But I'd never been to Chicago. And he says, well, the world's tallest building is there. And two people have tried to climb it. This is, if you're going to climb one building, this should be it. And I go, well, what makes you think I can climb it? And uh, he says, I don't. It's just other than if you're going to pick one, that should be the one you climb. The 110-story Sears Tower had completed construction in Chicago seven years earlier in 1973. And at over 1,400 feet, replaced the World Trade Center as the world's tallest skyscraper at the time. To tempt him even further, Dan says his client gave him a newspaper article on the previous attempts to climb it. The first, in May of 1978, ended at the 20th floor, where 25-year-old Joe Healy attached a banner to the building, protesting the killing of whales, and then agreed to come down. Then, in August of 1980, a 26-year-old named James McLaughlin went for it, using special clamps to work his way up one of the building's window-washing tracks. McLaughlin made it up to the 17th floor before authorities blocked his path using the window-washing machine. 
All of this, according to Chicago Tribune articles from the 70s and 80s. Nobody had ever made it to the top, and it was starting to seem like maybe no one ever would. Goodwin says the article ended with a quote from a fire official. And he said that the Sears Tower was impossible to climb unless he was perhaps Spider-Man. We couldn't find that specific article or quote, but we did manage to dig up an AP article from 1977 in which a Sears Tower spokesperson was asked, do you think anyone could climb Sears Tower? His response, quote, I certainly can't say that someone can't climb Sears Tower, but it would be very dangerous. I wouldn't want to try it. It has a flat surface of aluminum and glass, but it doesn't have channels that a climbing rig could be hooked into. End quote. Not quite as fun as the Spider-Man quote, which Goodwin says gave his client an idea, that Goodwin should not only climb the Sears Tower, but that he should do it wearing a Spider-Man costume. And I remember just thinking at that time, I'm like, oh my God, there's no way on earth, no way, seriously, that I would dress up as Spider-Man and and be seen in public. It's one thing to dress up as Spider-Man for Halloween, you know, Um, but to dress up in it and and to do something that serious, you know, is like, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. And I said, and he said, well, think about it. Um, If you do make it, and they arrest you and threaten to put you in jail. You're going to have every kid in the world on your side. And I thought about that and just looked at my son and I said, well, you got a good point there. That was it. Dan Goodwin was going to attempt to climb the world's tallest building, dressed as one of the world's most beloved superheroes. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey. If you're going to attempt to climb the world's tallest building, the biggest risk is pretty obvious. Once you reach a certain point, even a tiny mistake could result in falling to your untimely death. But let's set aside the safety risks for a minute. What about the legal risks to someone climbing a skyscraper? As far as he's concerned, Dan Goodwin says he's never seen himself as a criminal, even comparing his plan to climb the Sears Tower to an act of protest, civil disobedience. My act of civil disobedience was believing that I had somehow um, bring to the world's attention that firefighters are not capable of fighting fires in high-rise buildings. They're, They're just not. But was what Goodwin wanted to do illegal? Well, he says he spent some time trying to figure that out. I was very aware that um, people could think that I was breaking the law. And I remember asking around and uh, just kind of like I knew a lawyer friend. I had a a police officer, a couple police officer friends, and and I would just kind of throw it out there, not just saying I was going to do it, but if someone did, how would they be interpreted? And and everyone kind of came back and says, you know, one could say that you're trespassing, but technically, you aren't trespassing to enter the building, but you can't damage the building. And, uh, and I said, well, 
if you're using something like climbing with your hands and feet and you're using suction cups, and that, well, that, you know, as long as you're not damaging the building, I don't see how you could get trouble there. And um, so I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. And I said, but there's also one other thing you have to take consideration. I said, what's that? Reckless endangerment. You have to make sure that if you did fall or drop something, God forbid, um, that it would be impossible for it or you to hit anybody. So I really always, in all my climbs that I did without permission, I always chose a section of the building where I knew that um, I, I really wasn't going to be a risk to someone else. More, more to myself. As much as I'd love to take Dan's word on all of this, let's bring in a legal expert, just in case. Well, bouldering actually dates back to the 19th century uh, when the first so-called skyscrapers were built, minuscule by present-day standards, but pretty dramatic for the 19th century. And, you know, it, what it looks like is if you build it, they will climb. Scott Robinson is a trial lawyer in Colorado where he says bouldering or climbing buildings is not all too uncommon and probably not all too legal. Well, if you own a skyscraper, if you're wealthy enough to own a skyscraper, uh, you're probably not trespassing, which is the most common criminal law applied to a builder. The real problem comes when builders want to climb famous edifices such as the Eiffel Tower, uh, the Empire State Building, um, and quite frankly, any building in Las Vegas. Uh, every state Every municipality has its own laws that may or may not apply to bouldering. Sure enough, both of the men who attempted to climb the Sears Tower before our friend Dan ended up in legal trouble, as detailed in various articles in the Chicago Tribune. Following his 1978 attempt to climb the Sears Tower, Joe Healy pleaded guilty to a charge of destruction of property. As for James McLaughlin, the Sears and Roebuck Company pressed a charge of criminal damage to property, though according to a later UPI article, McLaughlin later agreed to pay the $736 in damage Sears said the stunt cost, and the charge was dropped. But what about Dan Goodwin's theory that if he doesn't set foot inside the building, he can't be charged with trespassing? I mean, it kind of makes sense. I'm not going to be charged with trespassing if I'm standing on the sidewalk touching the outside of a building. So why would it make a difference if I'm a few hundred feet up in the air? The problem comes when you start using the property for a purpose for which it's not intended, or you're in a part of the building that you're not supposed to be. So if you go into your local bank, for example, you go up to a teller's window and, and they're open, that's not a trespass. You go in there when they're closed, that you're somewhere where you're not supposed to be at a time you're not supposed to be there. And so the same logic goes to buildering. Uh, you're on a piece of property and the outside of which is equally part of the property as is the inside, any offices inside, it's still a place you're not supposed to be. And that is usually sufficient to get at least a misdemeanor type of uh, trespass charge filed. As for Goodwin's theory on reckless endangerment, that he could stay on the right side of the law by choosing the safest side of a building, well, Robinson says courts might not see eye to eye with him on that. For example, if someone is injured while climbing a building, who foots the bill for medical care? And what about spectators who are affected by what they witness, or first responders who might have to risk their lives when a climber gets stuck? 
Those are some of the considerations that have led some courts to charge reckless endangerment and not just criminal mischief. In most states and most jurisdictions, reckless endangerment is still either a minor misdemeanor or a low-level felony. But they are crimes, and they are subject to jail terms in most jurisdictions. So uh, anyone who in, engages in buildering has to know they're running the risk of spending some time behind bars. Whether he knew that or not, back in 1981, Dan Goodwin had other aspects of the climb on his mind. Before worrying about any of the legal consequences, he would have to survive. Like James McLaughlin, he was planning to utilize the building's window-washing tracks. But unlike McLaughlin... Goodwin had a trick up his sleeve in case authorities attempted to block his path. Suction cups. Whenever I was training with my suction cups, I would visualize myself traversing underneath the window washing machine to go around them. I was just imagining it. And I would get really good going to the right, and I'd get really good going to the left, and I just would kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then I'd fire up back and forth, back and fire up again. And I would just, I, I was doing rehearsals. In the spring of 1981, after months of rehearsing, it was time for the real thing. Cut to May 25th, Memorial Day. It's around 3.30, maybe 4 in the morning. And Dan Goodwin is dressed in a Spider-Man suit covered by a pair of baggy overalls, riding into downtown Chicago in a Volvo with a ladder strapped to the top, driven by an acquaintance. So we parked in one of the alleyways, and he, while he was undoing the ladder, I walked to the Sears Tower and uh, basically just ran into the corner when I saw that no one's around, ducked into the corner. It was dark, big puddle of water there. It was much cooler than I had remembered, and it seemed like it was just forever. And then suddenly I hear the clank, 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 clank of him running with a ladder, and he gets there, and we're about ready to set it up, and we had to bring it back down because the car was going by, and, and it turns out it was a, um, a cop. When the cop car passes, the two men prop the ladder up against the building, and Goodwin climbs up onto a first-floor rooftop that extends out from the rest of the structure. So now I roll up onto the roof, and I land, I'm rolled right into a puddle of water up there, and that was my, <laughs> that's how I started off, standing there. And I remember standing up and looking at the glass for the first time, because now I had never seen myself in a Spider-Man suit. I'd never stood there with the suit on, with a suction cup in either hand. And it was the most eerie feeling to be standing on the roof, looking at my glass reflection that was like a mirror. Um, of me standing there in a full Spider-Man suit because I had the hood and everything, the, the mask and the gloves and the booties. And, uh, and I get the mask, uh, the uh, suction cup in either hand. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is it. On the day of Dan Goodwin's hopefully death-defying stunt, Chicago resident Nick Fitzgerald wasn't expecting anything out of the ordinary as he headed downtown for a job at the Sears Tower. I was a building engineer. I was, I was actually an apprentice at, at the time, so I was just starting out. After Fitzgerald got to work, there was an announcement. Someone was on the side of the building. Correction, Spider-Man was on the side of the building. We were just told that someone's climbing the building, and one of the engineers I was with, I was, um, he was old-time... U.S. Navy guy from uh, uh, World War II. He was kind of crusty. <laughs> he 
a real nice guy, but he was crusty. And I forget what floor we were on, but as Spider-Man Dan climbed past us, he flipped him off. So only three people on this planet know that happened. Spider-Man Dan, the guy flipping him off, and me. I was 10 feet behind him. <laughs> Fitzgerald wasn't as upset as his co-worker about the interruption. I mean, come on. He had a front row seat to one of the strangest things you could hope to witness as a building engineer in Chicago. I was trying to see what, what he was using. He had some kind of hand clamp. I really couldn't see what he was using, but it was very interesting. Supposedly, he made it himself. He designed it and built it, and he was testing it, and it worked. Because when they lowered the rig, he just went around the rig. He went he went vertical. He went um, horizontal on the window on the side of the building, and then started going up again. The, the rig doesn't move fast, so when they started lowering it, he moved over. There was no way in the world they were going to get it back up and move it over and drop again. So he, he outsmarted them by moving over. On the other side of the glass, Dan Goodwin still hadn't realized the cops had been called, and he was already a couple hundred feet up the side of the building. I didn't know that anyone had spotted me at this time, and so I'm just in this mode of just like slapping a suction cup onto the glass, pumping it up. And I actually had this other camming device that I had made because I was looking at the pictures and I had some, uh, my friend make this other camming device that so came inside the window washing track. And I put it in and it, it worked, but it didn't work that well. Um, so I kind of used it in conjunction with my suction cups. I would slide it up. I put a little weight on it, but I didn't really trust it too much. I would slap my suction cups up, and then I would slide it up a little bit higher. And so I was kind of like um, doing a makeshift movement, and suddenly the curtains fly open in front of me. Scared the living daylights out of me. I mean, it's just like I, I all of a sudden I went from kind of this darkness to all of a sudden, bam, bright light. And it freaked the hell out of them because they suddenly saw this guy dressed up as Spider-Man. Goodwin says from then on, it was a game of cat and mouse. Them trying to catch him, him trying to avoid them. But he'd done his homework, and his plans to evade the window washing machines using suction cups seemed to be working until he got to somewhere around the 63rd floor, more than halfway up the building and higher than anyone else had ever made it. I had already escaped them by traversing right the window washing machine and fired up again. They lowered the window washing machine the second time, and it was on the 63rd floor. And I'm traversing left underneath them because I knew that they were setting up a trap for me if I went right, like I did before. And about halfway across, all of a sudden, and I have the video clips that show um, the suction cup popping off, it happened. I couldn't get my suction cup to stick. And the one that I'm hanging on to is starting to slide across the glass. Seconds away from certain death, Goodwin turned to his last resort, a climbing tool called a skyhook, a little metal hook used by aid climbers to anchor themselves to thin rock edges. I whip out a skyhook and I put it on the edge and I go to stand on it because I had a strap for it, like a foot loop. And I go to step on it and it slides across the metal edge, goes ping, slides right off. And now I'm hanging on to that one suction cup and it's sliding a little bit more. And I know it's just a matter of seconds before the thing comes off. And then I grab the skyhook and I put it back on the metal edge. And just as I did, the suction cup pops off. And the only thing that was holding me was a single skyhook teetering on the metal edge. (laughs) And I, I felt like, you know, like a snail 
on a thin razor blade that was just on the verge of just falling to my death. And, I, and all I could do was just focus on my breathing. I could see the people on the other side of the glass. They were totally freaking out because there was nothing they could do. And, and at that point, I, I'm positive that the city officials, whoever they were, building owners, whoever it was inside, made the judgment call saying, you know what, enough is enough. Um, either he's, we're going to get him killed or someone else is going to get killed trying to catch him. And because um, it was forced in the fire department to do a little more radical as well. So they allowed me to go. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm climbing up to the top of the world's tallest building, dressed as Spider-Man. <laughs> Just before 10.30 a.m., around six hours after he began his ascent, Goodwin reached the top of the Sears Tower. It was a moment he describes as euphoric. All these police officers and fire department guys are, are literally treating me like I was a hero, like I had done something that was way beyond their imagination. And uh, But there was um, a couple of people who didn't agree with them at all. As soon as he reached the top, Goodwin was taken into police custody. That week, the Chicago Tribune reported that Sears initially didn't want to press charges against the 25-year-old. But they did eventually agree to sign one complaint of disorderly conduct, a Class C misdemeanor, reportedly at the urging of law enforcement. A Sears spokesperson said the company decided to take the least severe action against Goodwin because it's evident that Dan Goodwin has captured the imagination of the public and Sears. The way Goodwin sees it, the Spider-Man costume had done its job. Nobody wants to be responsible for putting a superhero behind bars. When I told the media that, hey, I'm not Spider-Man, and someone yelled from the back, then we'll call you Spider-Dan. The moment that person said that, the media took over from then. I was now Spider-Dan. But something else had happened. I had become Spider-Dan. While it's not every day someone climbs to the top of the Sears Tower in a Spider-Man suit, there is a subculture of builderers who remain active around the world. For example, an American climber named Justin Cascajo has climbed several skyscrapers in New York City. His most recent YouTube video shows him atop Manhattan skyscrapers, and this has caught the attention of police. Oh wow, getting dizzy looking down there. The video shows him climbing 220 Central Park South at night, and then he hangs from the scaffolding high in the sky. Also posted pictures of himself scaling above a building in Columbus Circle. NYPD wants him to stop. They say you can't tempt gravity so many times and then survive. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Dave McGrail, assistant chief with the Denver Fire Department, says he's responded to a number of building climbers in his nearly four-decade career. And it's something he wishes wouldn't happen at all. Anytime somebody does that, um, they're endangering themselves, uh, they're endangering their life, and they're endangering a lot of other people. Because if they get to a certain point and they get stuck or whatever the case may be, then firefighters have got to go to rescue them. So they're putting a lot of people in harm's way by doing that. Once somebody is actually on the side of a building, there's only so much a fire department can do. We're not wanting to interfere with them because if we interfere with them, we could get hurt. They could get hurt. They could fall. We could fall, that sort of thing. But oftentimes when somebody starts to do that, they may find themselves in a position where they do get stuck or they get scared or whatever the case may be. And now they have to be rescued. So they've endangered their own life, and now they've endangered the firefighters that kind of have to come out there and rescue them. But if the climber is skilled enough to get to the top, 
McGrail says the safest option for everyone involved is usually to let them go, then let the police handle things once they get there. The police are going to put them in bracelets and they're going to take them off uh, away because of the, the trespassing issue and so on and so forth. Now, um, albeit spectacular, and I certainly admire somebody that has the strength to be a climber and they're uh, being brave enough to attempt to do that. When somebody does that, they're putting themselves and everybody else in harm's way and uh, certainly wish that the folks wouldn't, would not do that. While Dan Goodwin was sitting in jail after scaling the Sears Tower, he says Chicago Fire Commissioner William Blair came to his cell with a harsh warning, telling him never to climb another building in his city again, which is a great way to get a guy like Dan Goodwin to climb a building in your city again. And so I went from not going to climb another building to where I was going to climb another building. I just didn't know what building it was at the time. I had two or three in mind, but... I didn't know which one yet. Goodwin eventually settled on the 100-story John Hancock Center, another staple of Chicago's iconic skyline. And it was also the world's tallest residential building. I thought this is a great place to prove my point that, uh, and, and have that debate about how firefighters can fight fires and rescue people in high-rise buildings on the world's tallest residential building. But the Hancock proved to be a different challenge than its slightly taller neighbor to the south. Goodwin first attempted to climb in the fall of 1981. But when his suction cup stopped sticking a few stories up, he was brought to safety by Chicago firefighters and was again arrested. This time charged with disorderly conduct before being released on a $35 bond. Again, according to the Chicago Tribune. So that was a total disaster. I, I, that was a total defeat, but I vowed that I would come back. And that's exactly what he did. Within two weeks, Goodwin returned to Chicago with some new gear, and the cat and mouse game was back on. For those keeping score at home, the cat and mouse are currently tied at one. But this time around, as Goodwin begins making his way up the John Hancock, the cat is more aggressive. Firefighters spend hours trying to stop the climb, shattering windows, using the window washing machine to try to block his path, and eventually using high-pressure hoses to spray water at Goodwin. It's a well-documented and highly controversial move, one that Fire Commissioner William Blair later told the Chicago Tribune he made, because I'm afraid if we let him go, then tomorrow, some kid, your son, will try this, and he's going to fall to his death. And who's going to be blamed? The fire department. Goodwin insists it was a violent decision, one that put his life in danger. And at first I thought it was raining. And I remember looking up, just going, where's that water coming from? And then I, to my horror, I saw this guy leaning out of, an, it looked like an air conditioning vent, um, and was aiming the hose directly at me. And I could see the water pressure getting turned on harder and harder the higher I got up. And so the next sequence was glass coming down on me and then all of a sudden the water stops and the poles come fly. I saw hands, I tried to climb past them and they pulled, ripped away the glass and they stuck the poles out and tried to, to grab me or knock me off. Criminal defense attorney Scott Robinson says spraying a building climber with water seems like a pretty extreme response to something that likely amounts to a low-level crime. Well, it's certainly a law enforcement and emergency personnel overreaction if, in fact, it occurred. 
Uh, I don't know how much uh, actual documentation there is of the claim, but certainly rescue personnel or law enforcement, they use hoses that might kill the person who's bouldering. Seems like an extreme overreaction to the situation. Not to minimize the potential problem, the dangers to rescue personnel, anything that is done to actively attempt to dislodge the building-er from the building has got to be seen as inappropriate and, quite frankly, an overviolent response to a relatively innocuous activity. So you know, if, in fact, personnel in Chicago attempted to dislodge Goodwin in the midst of his climbing, then I think they are probably more guilty of a crime of a serious nature than is he. In response to the fire commissioner's explanation that someone less skilled might attempt to copy Goodwin, Robinson points out that although Goodwin may have been committing crimes, setting a bad example isn't one of them. I know of no laws anywhere that criminalize the idea that by doing something dangerous that risks your life, you're basically inviting others to emulate you. If that were true, skilled race car drivers could be held responsible for individuals that go out and drag race. So the idea of charging someone criminally based on what others might copy is, quite frankly, well outside the parameters of our present criminal statutes. Fire expert Dave McGrail says he can't speak to the specific details of the Chicago Fire Department's response in 1981, but that he would certainly never give an order like that one. We would not do that. I, I can't imagine any fire department would do that today because our job is to you know, preserve life and property. We want to save life, so on and so forth. But I would say the number one item is the reason that whole thing started is Goodwin. Goodwin was doing something that was illegal. He was putting himself in harm's way. He was putting other people in harm's way. And then he was doing something spectacular for whatever reason. I don't know Goodwin. Whatever reason he was doing that uh, for publicity, whatever the case may be, he was wrong. And he shouldn't have done that. But again, McGrail says he and his department are in the business of helping people, not hurting people. We don't want to have any life lost or whatever. Um, would we try and block them? Okay, if I'm the incident commander, I would not advocate for that. I'm certain that my fire department would not advocate for that. We would not like the fact that this person is climbing the building. They're trespassing. They could die. They could fall. Uh, they've, they've created a situation where there's a tremendous resource is committed to uh, this operation until they're finished. We, we certainly wouldn't like any of that, but we would not do anything that's going to cause them to fall. And blocking them could cause them to fall. Spraying them with water would cause them to fall. But once again, uh, none of that that is being described to you by Goodwin would have happened if Goodwin would have obeyed the law. And, and the law is don't climb up the outside of the Hancock building. Simple as that. But as Goodwin is clinging to the side of the building, determined to keep going, it's too late to undo that particular decision. So Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne and Police Superintendent Richard Brzezak meet with Fire Commissioner William Blair, at which point the decision is made to allow Goodwin to continue the climb for his own safety. Leaning out of a window, a few dozen stories above the ground, Brzezak reads Goodwin a court injunction issued against him after his previous attempt, making it clear that even though they might be getting out of his way, Goodwin doesn't technically have legal permission to keep going. 
Then the mayor wants to have a word with him. It wasn't much of a conversation as her trying to restore some understanding of her letting me know that she didn't agree with what I was doing, but she certainly didn't agree with what they were doing to me. And that if I wanted to go to the top, I could, but I had to accept all responsibility from that point on. With the fire department now out of the way, all that's left for Goodwin to do is climb one of the world's tallest buildings. Piece of cake, right? I, you know, I, I don't want to diminish the ascent at all in terms of like, you know, yes, you still have all those floors to climb. Um, it, it, I, I can hardly remember them. Other than once in a while, someone would knock on the window and I'd look and I could see that someone was inside and I'd give them a sign. And, and then when I, when I got to the top, there must have been easily 50 people up there. And they're all city officials. And they're all looking over the side. And they're just like totally freaked out. And when I pulled over the top, everybody wanted to have a picture taken with me. Everyone, suddenly I went from being like, you know, from like, knock them off to all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm like a hero. And, uh, and everyone was kind of fighting to see who could be in the elevator with me as they went down because they knew when the elevator opened, there'd be photographers and uh, TV crews at the bottom. And that's exactly what happened. And when I, when I got to the bottom, I don't remember anything other than when we were taking me from the elevator out to the streets, just the thousands of people that were all of a sudden in the streets. Nick Fitzgerald, the building engineer who had a front row seat for the first climb, was among those in the crowd at the bottom this time around. I was sitting at home, kitchen table with my dad, and breaking news came over. They showed him on the side of the building, so I gotta go. Grabbed my camera bag, and I jumped in a car, and I drove down there. Fitzgerald says the crowd was squarely in Goodwin's corner, cheering him on as he made the ascent. No one was really, like, cursing him as... I mean, he was doing his, his, his life, but um, everyone got upset when they, they hit him with the water. They, everyone got really upset. To the naked eye, it was tough to see what exactly was happening. But Fitzgerald says he was able to capture that moment with his camera. Well, I got a picture of the firefighters pushing the hose over the side. I zoomed in at them. And the home, I guess they were warning him they were going to blast him. And he was already on the side of the building. The only way to get down is to go up. So... Um, but they, they hit him full blast. I don't know how he lived. I really don't. But he did. Goodwin walked away with a $300 fine, a year's probation, and a burning passion for climbing buildings, sometimes with permission and sometimes without. After the Sean Hancock, I ended up climbing two buildings in Caracas. And um, one of them was the tallest building in all Latin America, El Central Towers. Um, another one was uh, a 30-story building. That one, that one was like 56 floors. The other one was 30 floors. I climbed that one all free with just my hands and feet. Then I climbed the World Trade Center in New York. You know you've climbed a lot of buildings when it takes a while to remember all of the buildings you've climbed. The list goes on and on. So I've, I've climbed a tw- a 12 buildings so far. I, I don't want to disappoint anyone, but I'm not going to be climbing any more buildings. <laughs> My wife won't let me. <laughs>
Today, Dan Goodwin runs an extreme sports website he created called TripleBlack.com, and he's working on a book tentatively titled Untethered, When Success is Your Only Option. If someone wants to read a book that reads like a thriller, but at the same time has a lot of this stuff in it, then they're in for a treat because this isn't about me beating my chest about me climbing buildings. I mean, you could, it would have been actually, in my opinion, had it just been just talking about one building climb to another, it'd be a boring book. It'd just be a climber's book. But it's not written that way at all. It's it's written from someone who is trying to come to terms with coming from nothing and becoming something. Goodwin says even though he's done buildering for now, he's still mountain bikes, snowboards, and of course, climbs. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm engaged. I plan on doing this. I, I you know I saw this billboard, and I know this sounds crazy, okay, but. Everything starts off crazy, and then you realize it's not really as crazy as you thought. But I was driving by, and I saw this billboard that said, someone amongst us is going to be the first person that's going to live to 150. My very first thought I had, my very first thought, and you always have to pay attention to your first thoughts. My first thought was, that's going to be me. I guess if someone's going to live to 150, why not a guy who climbs skyscrapers for fun? Next time on Strangeville. I I don't know why. I was watching a comedy and I started to cry. I was watching a mystery and I started to laugh. And a lot of that is also attributed because it's not only, we have to think of the body as a whole. It's also the brain chemistry changes. Strangeville is a Vault Studios production. Our writer and producer is Reed Redman. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. Executive producers are Brian Weiss and me, Will Johnson. You can hear more from me on our daily podcast, The Daily Crime, available wherever you listen to Strangeville. To learn more about our other podcast, visit vaultstudios.com. Until next time, remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.